Open your Bible to John 14. And I want to read verses 1 through 6. You know how you anticipate something, especially when you're a kid, and you build it up, and you build it up, and you build it up in your mind, and it's, it's the day has finally arrived, and you're on your way. That's kind of the way I feel right now. The day has finally arrived. So read with me verses 1 through 6 of John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we've come, we've read these familiar words of our Savior. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would give life to these words and that we would come to know in truth some for the first time, some for the hundred and first time or more, that Jesus Christ is indeed the only way. He is the truth and the life. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish your work in every heart. Those like the disciples who were troubled in heart, Lord, might you bring peace Lord, those in whom the truth of God does not yet dwell, we pray that you would be pleased to bring it forth this morning. Father, let it not be said of any that has entered this place this morning unbelieving. May it not be said by them in truth that they've never heard a simple gospel message. So, Father, we pray that you would do that which pleases you. Do that which magnifies and honors your Son. That you would make him known through the preaching of your word. We ask it in his name. We ask it for his sake. We ask it for the good of everyone present. Amen. Before we get too involved in these words, I, I want to remind you of something else that Jesus said. This is back in Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to read you a couple of verses out of that chapter. Verses 12 and 13. Jesus is speaking here of the end. And he's describing for us 
either a season of the end or perhaps the entire season of the end. In verse 12 of Matthew 24, he says, Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. I referenced this verse on Wednesday evening in our prayer meeting. But I also want to read it to you from the King James Version. Two words are changed. King James says, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And I want to try at the beginning this morning to make these things connect. The rising of iniquity or lawlessness in a society or in a culture has a direct effect upon the love of the people of God for their God. Jesus says plainly, I don't have to make this more simple or plain than it already is. Jesus says, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Now, I suppose the question for you and I to ask, is this true of me? Is this true of me? Has my love for Christ and his church, for God, however you want to describe it, has my love for the things of God, the people of God, has it grown cold because of the lawlessness and iniquity that is abounding around me? And I suppose that every generation of Christians has lived in this age that they would define as lawlessness and iniquity. But while every Christian might say that, I do believe that Jesus is telling us here that there are particular seasons or a particular season when lawlessness and iniquity is going to abound to the degree that even the love of many saints of God who are caught off their guard, who have not kept their lamps trimmed, who have not kept a measure of oil with them. They're going to be caught off guard so that in truth it will say, be said of them, their love has grown cold. It doesn't necessarily mean, Jesus doesn't say that they've lost their salvation. That's a, a bunch of, of garbage. If you believe that you can lose your salvation, then you've believed the wrong thing in the beginning. Because the thought or belief that you can lose your salvation, at the beginning of that, there is a thought or a belief that you've done something in and of yourself to secure it. The scripture presents salvation in totally different terms. We've sang about it this morning twice in two different hymns. Nothing we bring. And if salvation is all of God and we receive it, if we believe the message if we're awakened to the truth of God and we have believed in truth, then that salvation can never be lost. It was given to you by another. It will be kept for you by another. You and all of your weakness and my, myself and all of my weakness, we cannot sin our way out of the love of God. What shall separate us from the love of God? How do you answer that question? If you were God's in Christ and in Christ alone, nothing 
in this known world or any other world is going to separate you from the love of God. Maurice Roberts is probably a name you're not familiar with. I haven't been familiar with his name for too long. He is a former editor of the Banner of Truth magazine. It's interesting to me that he preached a series of sermons over 20 years ago that have been compiled in a small book and given the title, The Great Transformation. The very first chapter in that book has the title, Living When Sin Abounds. And I want to read you a quotation, a direct quotation by Maurice Roberts. And I think it fits so well with what we're talking about, what Jesus is saying of himself here in John fourteen six. This is a definition of what it means to live in a society when iniquity or lawlessness is abounding. Here is what he says. Confusion is widespread in society. People do not know where they are, what to believe, what is right, or what is wrong, or what to understand concerning God. Religions and churches are also all mixed up and confused. People lose their bearings. They lose their moorings. That, says our Lord, is a period when sin is abounding. And I do not hesitate to say that today we are living in just such a time. A time when sin is no longer without menace or threat. But when sin and unbelief are threatening to carry away before them everything that you and I love. Sin is threatening to sweep away everything that is precious. All that we believe in. And all the laws and practices that God has taught us in this world, end quote. Lawlessness is abounding to the point that it is seeking the adversary, the liar, he who is opposed to God and his ways and always has been and will be to his very end, is doing exactly what Maurice Roberts has said. He is trying to sweep away everything precious. Everything that we have believed in is trying to be taken away. He goes on for one more sentence and he says, Everything is turned upside down and the Lord's people are being affected by the confusion. It is a definite sign that iniquity is abounding and that wickedness of the age is having a harmful effect upon God's own people and their sanctification. I don't know if you believe that. I believe it. I believe the wickedness of the age is having an effect upon the people of God, particularly the nominal people of God. And it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get any better. Someone has said it this way, referring to the church of Jesus Christ being in the world but not of the world, someone has said, when the ship is in the water, that's good. That's the right way to look at your Christian life. Your ship of Christianity is in the water of the world, but when the water gets in the ship, it's another thing altogether. 
And I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say and to think that too much water of the world has gotten into the ship of modern Christianity. Let me expand this illustration just a little bit. When the ship is in the water, that's good. When the machinery, the weaponry, is all functioning like it should, then the ship being in the water is a very good thing. The ship is armed and dangerous. Armed with the message of the gospel, knowing how to use that gospel in the world, presenting Christ and truth, presenting Christ as being the only way, truth, and life. But what happens when the water of the world begins to seep in, then the machinery and the weaponry begin to rust and they don't work exactly like they used to. And Those who are manning the fort, so to speak, become a little either disgruntled or unable or unwilling to carry out the same tasks in the same way. There are certain things that keep the water out of the ship. Certain things that keep it at bay. And sadly, it's those very things that keep the water out of the ship that are beginning to look increasingly odd and impractical and perhaps even unloving to the Christian whose love is growing cold. In some ways, I would love to go back 150 years and sit in Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle. I would like to think that I would feel at home there. Or to go back and sit in Martin Lloyd-Jones' sanctuary, Westminster Chapel, and to hear him thunder out the word of God. I I would like to think that I would feel at home there. I would like to think that you would feel at home there. But I think it's a good question of introspection. Would we really? For all of their fame and notoriety through church history, those churches were very basic. They were very simple. They were big. The Lord poured out his blessing upon them. But they were not a place of mass confusion. There wasn't a lot going on besides the preaching of the word and prayer. If you read the history of Metropolitan Tabernacle, Charles Spurgeon, who many suppose to be the greatest preacher in the English language, he will attribute all of the success to that church that that church had, not to himself, but to the people who would gather midweek to pray. See, that's what keeps water out of the ship. Not many feel at home doing it anymore. Here are the things that keep water out of the ship. Prayer. I'm, I'm talking about Individual prayer, at home, 
with your family. And I'm talking about the meeting of the church praying. And I realize a lot of people shun the church prayer meeting because they don't want to come and and pray for Aunt Bessie's sore toe. I get it. If that's the prayer meeting, then we're not praying as we ought. Not to say that we shouldn't pray for the alleviation of physical things. We certainly should. That's right and good. But if we stop short and that's all that we do, and we've not met for prayer in the biblical expectation. Here is the second thing that keeps water out of the ship. A cultivated appetite for the word of God. You realize you have to cultivate your appetite for the word of God. Those of you who garden, you know your garden doesn't grow without being cultivated. Weeds spring up, grass grows, you have to root it out. But yet we think otherwise in our Christian life. We think that appetite for the word, appetite for Christ, appetite for his church, all of these things are going to grow with little to no effort on our part. I'm not discounting at all that very often the Spirit of God will so overcome you and so overcome me and give us this appetite and desire that we can do nothing else. But I want you to know something. My experience is that those seasons are usually far apart in a short duration when they come. Thankfully, the Lord does stir within us and we have seasons of life where we feel like Jeremiah. There's this fire in our bones that we can do nothing else than serve the Lord, read His Word, study, attend church, attend the prayer meetings, do all of those things that we know we're supposed to do. But if you've been a Christian any length of time, you know that that's not the norm. The norm very often is waking up And disciplining yourself unto godliness. That's what Paul wrote to Timothy. Discipline yourself unto godliness. Cultivating an appetite for the word of God in private and then in public. And this is done both by the one standing behind the pulpit and those who are sitting in the pew. If we want to keep the water out of the ship, we're going to pray And we're going to desire and hunger the Word of God. And then thirdly, we're going to be given to serious times of Christian fellowship. And all of those words are important. Serious times of Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship at its best is brother and sister coming together in the Lord, discussing, talking over the things of the Lord, seeking to encourage one another, doing so over a meal, whatever it may be that brings you together, but having some real meaningful conversation. That's fellowship. In a day like ours when lawlessness is abounding, And hopefully we can all agree with that. Lawlessness is abounding. Please hear your affection and appreciation for Christ's church should be increasing and not decreasing. And let me be very plain and very clear. Not very often 
do I count people who are here and, and go home feeling good because there were a lot or not so good because there weren't many? Now, I used to do that years ago. I used to base, you know, am I an effective pastor or preacher based on the number of people who show up for the service? Thank God he's taught me through the years that that's not a faithful measure at all. And so when you hear me say things like, your affection for Christ's church should be increasing. I'm not saying that to you to feed my own pride or my own zeal. I'm saying that to you because I love you and because I know in an age when wickedness and lawlessness is abounding, you and I are going to need Christ's church. It's just a fact. The more we distance ourselves from it, then the more we fit the description of what I read out of Matthew chapter 24. The love of many will wax cold. All of that is a very lengthy introduction to John 14, verses 1 to 6. And it's all pointed in this direction. The ultimate way to keep the water of the world out of the ship of the church is to be right on who Jesus is. To let there be no confusion, no consternation. Draw a line in the sand and declare that Jesus is who he says he is. Maintain the exclusivity of his being the only way. And so let's look at these verses. Let me set their context quickly. This is early before Jesus is betrayed. Verse 38 of chapter 13, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have, heard me, till you have denied me three times. Of course, he said that to Peter. And we know that throughout the hours of the night, we read chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, the high priestly prayer, then we get to chapter 18, Jesus is betrayed and arrested in Gethsemane. So this is the beginning of the discourse that would lead up to his arrest in the garden. Jesus perceives, as only Christ could, trouble in the heart of the disciples. He's told them several times, though they hadn't heard it to its fullest degree, he's told them what's about to take place. And so this conversation takes place between Jesus and his disciples, familiar words, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. And then Thomas, aren't you thankful for Thomas? Thomas, what do we call him? How do we distinguish him between the rest of the disciples? Very often you'll hear him referred to as Doubting Thomas. Based upon his reaction to the news that Jesus had been raised from the dead. But even here he's tipping his hand just a bit, isn't he? Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And this speaking of the way has begun to dominate the conversation. Go back to chapter 13. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. And Peter replied, Lord, why why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And of course, we know how Jesus responds to that. We know that early believers were not referred to as Christians They were referred to as followers of the way. It wasn't until sometime later in the book of Acts and and in the beginning as a derogatory term where they referred to as Christians. And so in response to Thomas asking the question, Lord, where are you going? How can we know the way? And, And I can sense in Thomas there just a bit of Thomas is really wanting to be with Jesus. He understands to some degree that Jesus has told him he is about to leave the scene and that it's going to be good for them when he does leave because then the Spirit of God is going to come and be a comforter. And so perhaps the best known verse out of John 14 I hesitate to say it's the best known verse out of the Gospel of John because there are so many well-known verses. But I can say outside of John 3.16, this is one of the first verses that I as a child ever committed to memory. Being prompted to do so by a Sunday school teacher. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's look at each one of these statements of Jesus in turn. All of them, all three of them, I think are summarized by Jesus in this same verse when he says, no one comes to the Father. So to come to the Father, you need a way, a way that is well defined in truth and a way that ends in life. So all three of these words, all three of these ideas, these descriptive attributes, we might even call them, of Jesus, all of them are pointing to that which ends in coming to the Father. I think every person with any measure of sanity, 
who have not been completely given over to a debased mind, any person you ask with a measure of sanity, do you want to go to heaven when you die? The vast majority of those people are going to reply, yes, I want to go to heaven when I die. There are only a few, and there are a few, who were like the person I saw this week who had the bumper sticker on their car, a rainbow, and then it says, Satan loves me. There's a few like that. There, is, there are a few who have reached stut, such a state of perversity in their thinking that it seems like the Lord has just given them over. What a dreadful place to be. But the vast majority of sane people, the vast majority of people in our day are still going to give a positive answer to the question, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Now, that's, that's as far as we're going to get in having common ground with a lot of people is the desire to go to heaven when they die. Ask them how they're going to get there. Ask them what they are going to do to get there or what they're going to believe to get there, who they're going to trust in that's going to secure this way to heaven for them, and then the answer's just shotgun, don't they? They go in every different direction. Most will say, I'm hoping my good outweighs my bad. When God weighs my life in the end and he gets out his scale, I'm hoping and trusting that all of the good things that I've done are going to outweigh the bad things that I've done. I would venture to say that the majority of people, that's what they're basing their hope for eternity on. And there are endless, countless religions that will take you down that road and feed that lie. It's a lie of Satan. Its way ends in death. It will not usher you into the presence of a holy God upon the point of your death. Far to the contrary. That's why we see this is a, one of the primary reasons we have to keep the water of the world out of the ship of true Orthodox Christianity, lest we become confused like the world. And you know this. I don't have to tell you this. You know this. Much of the professing church in the modern world is confused. Absolutely confused as to what is going to end up placing a person in heaven at the end of their life. All types of synergisms abound. And by synergisms, I mean a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Throw it into the pot, mix it up, and what you end up with at the end is a way that leads to heaven. You've heard things like this before. All roads lead to heaven. All beliefs ultimately lead to heaven. Just believe whatever you're going to believe sincerely that's the phrase, that's the word, the catch word. Be sincere in whatever you believe. And if you are sincerely trusting in Muhammad, or if you are sincerely trusting in Buddha, or if you are sincerely trusting in your works, then all will, in the end will be well. A lot of problems with that. None of us are ever that sincere. 
None of us will be able to maintain that level of sincerity, but that's not the main problem. The main problem is it just doesn't square with what Jesus says. The first thing that he says, I am, follows the pattern that we've seen through all six of these statements so far. Jesus saying, I suspect with a raised voice, drawing attention to himself, I, even I, am the way. When he speaks of his being the way, think of this word, access. I am the way of access to a holy God. When we understand Jesus saying that he is the way, I think one of the first things that must come to our mind is the holiness of God. A holy God has prescribed one way that he can be accessed. And it's Jesus Christ, his son. I want to point you to a few verses that speak to this. Romans chapter 5. And you can listen as I read, or if you're quick on the draw, you can turn to these. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom? Also, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul says three times in two short verses that it is through Jesus, through Jesus, that we have access into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18 Here, Paul has combined both the Jew and the Gentile. He has lumped them together as one when he says in the second chapter, in the 18th verse, For through him we both, Gentile and Jew, have access by one Spirit to the Father. So again, when Jesus is saying, I'm the way, he's saying, I am the singular way of access to a holy God. But then perhaps the verses that put the finest point on the spear are contained in Hebrews chapter 9 and in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So what is that verse saying? Well, skip over to chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter, access the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. Back in chapter 9, 
The way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Get to chapter 10. It's now made manifest. This new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So when Jesus says, I'm the way, he's saying in me, in my person, everything that I am as being fully God and fully man, it is through me that you have access to God. And when we speak of this way, Hebrews 10 puts a very fine point on the spear when he says that this way is ultimately through his flesh. Jesus dying, suffering under the hand of Roman soldiers through crucifixion. His arms there spread wide, opening the way of access to a holy God. Jesus says very plainly, I am the way. You want to go to heaven when you die? I trust that you do. Let me just be very honest with you. You will not make it there unless you gain entrance through this way. The way. There is no other. But this is not all that Jesus says. He doesn't just say, I am the way. It would have been enough. would have been sufficient. It would have been in every way true. It would have been in every way exclusive. But that's not what he says. It's, it's as if it wasn't exclusive enough. He says, I am the way and the truth. You probably heard the word pluralism in reference to religion. Pluralism is just the belief that any and everything is true. Just believe it and it's true for you. What may be true for me is not necessarily true for you. Therefore, the one who sets the standard of truth is the one who is believing it. That's a pervasive thought in this increasingly lawless and iniquitous society. It's damning error. It is belief in a way that will ultimately give you a permanent address in hell. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth. I like what Albert Barnes says as a definition for the truth. I'd never read this before. Truth is a representation of things as they are. Simple enough. Truth is a representation of things as they are. Albert Barnes, in his notes on the New Testament, goes on to say, Jesus is the source of truth, or he who originates and communicates truth for the salvation of men. The life, the purity, and the teaching of Jesus Christ was the most complete and perfect representation of the things of the eternal world that has ever been or can be presented to man. You're never going to get a more trustworthy statement of the truth than what Jesus has given. Albert Barnes goes on and he says, the ceremonies of the Jews were shadows. The life of Jesus 
was the substance or the truth. The opinions of men are fancy, but the doctrines of Jesus were nothing more than a representation of the facts as they exist in the government of God. Jesus has stated the facts as they exist in the government or the economy of God. Those of you, like myself, who read news or listen to it, you're always trying to discern the truth in it. Sadly, there's not much truth in mainstream news these days. It's just not. When you open your Bible... And when you read the scripture, be encouraged. You're never having to discern what's right and what's wrong. Because everything that you read is right. Everything that you read is true. Your predicament and mine is coming under submission to it. We don't have to read a statement like this. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We don't have to take a step back from it and then wonder, what part of this is true? What part of this is faithful? What part of this has been faithfully communicated to me? What part of this can I trust? There's no fact-checking going on here. It's true. I am the truth. You're familiar with Jesus' interaction with Pilate. Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everything about the life, the ministry, the death, the the burial, the resurrection, everything about Jesus Christ was to bear witness to the truth. Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? And washed his hands of the whole matter. Paul, writing to the Ephesians in the first chapter, at the end of that great first sentence in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, In Jesus you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel, accorded, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Let me just make this as simple as I can make it. And as simple as I think the scriptures make it, the world is in the shape that it's in today because the truth of God concerning Jesus has been exchanged for the lie. It's that simple. The truth of God concerning Jesus 
has been exchanged for the lie. That's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, that passage that has such bearing on the day in which we live. Paul writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Notice that phrase. The truth is always rising to the surface. The truth as it is according to Jesus is always rising to the top. A person who wants to shut his ears to it, close his eyes to it, must suppress it. It's like trying to sit on top of a big beach ball. Always trying to push it beneath the surface. But what's it trying to do? It's always trying to come up. And in the end, what happens? It's going to throw you off and it's going to sit there on top of the water. That's the same thing, the same way we should think about the truth of God. In the end, it's going to throw everyone off and it's going to stand. There will be no longer an ability to even suppress it a little bit. But as I go on and read the rest of that passage... Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You know, when you read Romans chapter 3, it says every mouth is stopped and becomes silent before God. Why? Because you have nothing to say. Those who are condemned before a holy God, there is nothing that you can say to justify why you heard the gospel over, 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 over again. Why God in common grace showered you with the gospel and yet you have no response for why you did not come to Christ believing. So now your mouth is sealed. You have no ability to speak and you are there to bear the righteous and holy wrath of God. Going back to Romans chapter 1 to finish out that paragraph. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, their foolish hearts being darkened. They professed to be wise, and in doing so they became fools. I don't know that there's a better commentary on the wisdom of the world in our day than that. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, what's the end of all of this? What is God's response to those who are suppressing the truth? His response, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. The great exchange is what it's been referred to. But let's call it what it is in truth. It's the Eternally damning exchange. Quickly, Jesus says thirdly, I am the life. He's the way of access to God. He's the truth. Everything else is error. Everything else is falsehood. Everything else is a lie of the devil. But he says, I am the life. 
just two points to make on this. There is no life of any kind apart from Jesus. You would not have your natural, physical life if it were not for the ministry of Jesus. I've got these verses in my notes. I'll just mention them to you. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 3, in him was life. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 tells us there that it was Jesus who made everything and is holding everything together. He is the very source of natural, physical life. All of that is true, but I don't suspect it's exactly the point Jesus is making. The point that he is making is that he is the source of spiritual life. Would you be saved? Would you go to heaven when you die? Then you must go there alive. What do I mean by that? Dead men don't go to heaven. And I'm referring to spiritually dead men. Spiritually dead men go to Gehenna, the lake of fire. Hell. Spiritually alive men who have been given life, they are the ones and they only that go to heaven when they die. This life is found in Jesus alone. Any other life is a fantasy. Any other supposed life will leave you weeping and gnashing your teeth in the end. So at the end of this, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you have your Bible open still, look at these words. If you don't have your Bible open still, Open it again. The second half of verse 6. No one. No one. No one comes to the Father except through me. We could preach weeks on those words, but I want to summarize them here in just a few minutes. There is not one. This is all inclusive. No exceptions. No one is smart enough to skirt around this. No one is strong enough to skirt around this. No one is wise enough to skirt around this. No one has anything that will be of any value in getting around this truth when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Coming to the Father equates to having eternal life. Coming to the Father equates to go into heaven when you die. Coming to the Father equates to be saved. 
Coming to the Father equates with being justified before God. Coming to the Father equates to all of these phrases, biblical phrases that we have that refer to what it means to be made right with God. That's what coming to the Father means. And notice, no one is going to come to Him except through me. If you would be saved in the end, you must. Not because I say so, but because the Son of God has said so. You must come through Him. Question, how do I come to the Father through Jesus? It's very simple. You believe everything He said. Believe every single thing he has said about the necessity of salvation. Why is salvation necessary? Because all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Because all we like sheep have gone astray. Because in Adam we died. All of us. You believe that. That salvation is a necessity. And if this situation of yours isn't rectified before your eyes close in death, then it is forever, eternally too late. But it's not just the necessity of salvation. It's the way of salvation. Believing in the one and only Son of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his only, only son. And then you believe that Jesus will do for you what he has said he will do. He will save you. Your sin will be washed away because he dealt with it in your place as your substitute, and now you can do what Hebrews says, boldly approach the throne of grace. Because you have gained entrance to the Father through Jesus. Not on your own. Where do you stand in relation to all of these things? I realize that these next 60 seconds may be the most sobering 60 seconds of your week. I pray to God in these next 60 seconds that you will think thoughts that you won't think the rest of the week. And I can say that because as soon as we go out these doors, there's going to be a hundred things to distract you. If not Several hundred things. And the way that that usually works is your conscience, which right now may be awakened. It may be alive to the things of God. You may be quickened to the point that you feel like I've got to do something. And if you don't act on that and you go out those doors, all of those things are going to quench that awakened conscience. And you're going to go back to the mundane life of the world 
and the seed of the gospel that's been sown in your heart, the birds will have come and taken it away. Or the cares of the world are going to choke it out yet again. Or it'll be true of you yet again that it has fallen on stony ground. So what do you do? Believe Jesus right now. Believe Him. Believe that He's the way, the truth, and the life. And that if you come to Him, you have access eternally to the Father. You have eternal life. I pray you'll do it right now. And if you want to come and tell me later, I'll rejoice with with you. But that's something you can do right now between you and God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the words of Jesus. I thank you for the truth of Jesus. I thank you for the life, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. All of these works and activity of His. Lord, we confess, we believe. Every aspect of what He has said, we believe to be true. We know that He is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, I I pray and ask You to impress that upon every person. Lord, I pray for that one who because of lack of courage, because of fear, that you would remove it and dispel it. Expose it to be what it is, a lie of the devil. Give confidence and courage to come to Christ. Awaken that within us, I pray. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.